0: Can you imagine if Paul the Apostle had email? <laughs> Think how thick your Bibles would be. It was a good thing that he had snail mail. I love email. I love the fact that I can get on and instant message somebody, that I can write people all over the world and get it there immediately and receive messages back and check the news, etc. But Paul didn't have that advantage. He had to write on a scroll and then the scroll was hand delivered by an emissary who would walk or travel by beast to get to these places. Because communication was so slow, it had an opportunity for problems to fester, to get worse and worse. And that's what we see happening here in the book of Galatians. As you begin reading the letter, you can immediately tell that something is different. It's not like a normal epistle of Paul. Usually he opens it up and says his grace and peace bit, but he offers a word of praise to God. He does that here, but then he usually includes a little prayer for his audience. Now he doesn't do that. Paul gets right to the heart of his message. He's not on his knees. He's kind of standing up with boxing gloves on as he gets into this letter because there was a problem, and the problem was over what we're celebrating tonight with these elements, and that is the gospel. There was a group of people who snuck into the church after Paul had left and established it and reaffirmed it, and brought in a different message. We will call them Judaizers. That's what theologians and commentators usually call them, though they're not mentioned here in the Bible. But these were people who took Paul's message of grace and mixed legalism with it. They mixed the law with it. And it became not the gospel at all. Now something about this group of people, and you'll find it as a pattern even today, these guys didn't go out and start their own churches, their own Bible studies, their own works. What they did, they were like parasites. They went to an already established work went into the work, subverted it by telling people, well, what Paul told you wasn't really right. We have the true gospel, the true meaning, and tried to separate these young believers from Paul as a messenger and from the gospel as a message. I brought with me tonight one of my prized possessions. It's a book. I love books. I love old books. But this book especially, it's a 1749 edition of Martin Luther's commentary to the Galatians. To me it's priceless, because Luther wrote it, what, in the 1500s? And here's something that is in 1749, and it was Luther's greatest work. In fact, Martin Luther said of this book, he said, the letter to the Galatians is my letter. I've betrothed it to myself, it is my wife. Now, he wasn't saying he divorced Catherine, his real wife, and actually married the book and kissed it, but he loved the message of the book of Galatians, and I'm glad he did. It was his love for this book and his writing of the commentary that stirred up another man by the name of John Wesley, who in reading Luther's commentary decided that God would use him to start his own movement, brought revival to the British Isles started a new church movement known as Methodism, which was very different then than it is today, bringing a revival even to the new world here in America. The reason Luther and Wesley loved Galatians so much and the reason you should love the book of Galatians is because it exposes a substitute for spirituality. It's a substitute that many people have leaned on and gone toward instead of being spiritual, they become legalistic. Do you know any people like that? Very rigid, very cold, very austere. They wouldn't know grace if it hit them in the head. They squelch out the freedom that other Christians have. And by the way, Every movement and every church has them. I know some of the ones here. I'm not going to mention them by name. And I'm not looking at different ones. You're it, you're it, you're it. But every movement, every church has them. Legalists are sort of like Santa Claus. You know, Santa makes a list and checks it twice. So do legalists. They have their own list of do's and don'ts. This is holy, this is not holy, this is spiritual, this is unspiritual. They've created a man-made list and they measure everyone else up to their little list. A word about these Judaizers. They were Jewish Christians. It's not like they weren't adherents to Christ, at least in name. They said they believed in Christ. However... They had a Jewish background, and part of the baggage of Judaism was brought in. You know, Jews didn't believe Gentiles could be saved. There was a famous Jewish rabbi who said, God created Gentiles, non-Jews, to kindle the fires of hell. Another rabbi said, All of heaven rejoices when one sinner is obliterated from the earth how different were the words of Jesus who said all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents but that is the difference gospel of john says the law came by moses but grace and truth came through jesus christ so these legalists these judaizers took the gospel message of god saving us by his grace and added law to it. And as soon as you add anything to the gospel, it's not the gospel. You know, the good news, that's what gospel means. The good news is that though you can't get to heaven by yourself, by your religion, by your ceremonies, by your deeds, by your attitudes, by your background, by your regulations. Somebody paid the price for you and gives salvation, eternal life to you as a free gift. So you must receive that gift. That's the good news. As soon as you say, well, that's a good start, but let's add a little legalism to it. Now it's not good news anymore. It's bad news. Because the bad news is some days you are better than others. Some days you perform and you go to bed, I was a saint today. No, you weren't. Just ask somebody who saw you all day. But you feel really good about yourself. Then the next day you fail to do something. Or you lash out at somebody. Or you drive like me. And then you feel like such a failure. I don't know if I'm saved anymore. That's what legalism will do to you. We had that back in California when the Jesus movement was just taking off in the way back when, 19-whatever. And uh, I remember specifically the local Orange County newspaper coming out with an article of ministers and what they thought about this cult called Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa. And the cult leader, Chuck Smith. That's their words, not mine. And uh, these austere ministers were looking inside at all these, as Jean-Luc said, long-haired hippies who in droves came to faith in Christ. And one minister said, well, all they have is Jesus. (laughs) What else do you need? If you got Jesus, man, you got it all. But all they have is Jesus. That's Paul's point. The theme of this book is the grace of God. You've heard the term before. Grace is God's favor to undeserving sinners. It's been called unmerited favor. You don't deserve it. God gives it anyhow. That's grace. Or there's an acronym that kind of goes along with this. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense, God's riches at Christ's expense, that's grace. Because Jesus paid the price, his expense, God grants you his riches. Let me quickly give you the divisions, and we're only going to go through a few verses tonight. That's all we have time for, and then we'll take communion, but it centers on the gospel. The division of the book is easy. There are six chapters. There's three divisions, two chapters, two chapters, and two chapters. The first division, chapters one and two, is Paul is very personal. That is, Paul gives his own experience with the gospel message. He alludes to his conversion on the Damascus Road. He speaks about his early growth as a believer, how he came to understand God's grace by revelation. The first two chapters are very personal, very autobiographical. Chapters 3 and 4 mark the second division, that's the doctrinal division. Several arguments are laid out by this master theologian as to why grace is much better than works and the only grounds of salvation. The third division, if there's personal and then doctrinal, the third division is practical. He shows you how that grace changes an entire lifestyle. On a practical level, when you come to a real understanding of God's riches at Christ's expense, how everything changes, and you see it in a person's life. Let's look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul begins with his authority. He is an apostle. Now, his authority had been challenged. These Judaizers, as I said, snuck in after Paul would start a church. He would leave. They would come in and they'd say, What did Paul tell you? Well, that's not right what he told you. He is not an authentic apostle. He's not one of the original 12 apostles, which, of course, they were correct. He was not one of the original 12 apostles. But here he calls himself an apostle, not from men, not through men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Let me tell you about apostles. You could look at the term or the office in three senses. Number one is the strictest sense, the original 12. There are no more than 12 in the original sense. Jesus chose 12 men who were disciples. They became apostles. There was no perpetuity of that office except in one instance, and that is Judas was replaced by Matthias in Acts chapter 1. But there was never an apostolic succession. Peter didn't say, and now I deem you as the next apostle in charge. Nor did James say, and now I appoint you to take over my place. There was no apostolic succession. In the second sense of the word, it's in the wider sense. The New Testament designates guys like Barnabas, people like Silas, Timothy, and others, also with the term apostolos, one who is sent out on a commission. And there is never a record of perpetuity or apostolic succession with those guys. Now in the widest possible sense, it could include anyone who goes out and gives a testimony for Christ. It means literally a sent out individual. And guess what? God has a ministry for you. You're sent somewhere. He has a task for you to perform. So if you looked at it in its widest sense, we would say a missionary has an apostolic gift though we wouldn't call him an apostle in the strict sense or even in the wider sense, but in the widest possible sense, somebody is commissioned to go out on a mission for the Lord, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul had a special designation. He is called, and rightly so by the early church, an apostle or the apostle to the Gentiles because that was his ministry. You know, after he fell off his horse on the Damascus road and he went into Damascus and he couldn't see, Ananias came to him and gave him a message from Jesus. Jesus said, Ananias, you tell that young man by the name of Saul of Tarsus that I have called him. He is a chosen vessel to me to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. So he went out with the designation as apostle to the Gentiles. He begins with his authority. Because after all, Paul had something these self-styled, self-appointed Judaizers didn't have. It's called an apparition. Jesus actually appeared to him on the Damascus Road. Saul, Saul, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. Whoa! Now, I don't know if he said that, but I would have. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That event changed his life. The commission by Ananias fueled his ministry. I want to make a point quickly before we move on into verse 2. All of us are called to serve the Lord some capacity. But in any ministry, your calling must be proved. Now, anybody can say, well, I don't need men. I'm not commissioned by man. God sent me. That's great. We would applaud you. I'd say, well, that's right. But if you're called, we ought to be able to see the proof of your calling. We ought to be able to see fruit in your ministry. If you say, God's called me to be an evangelist. How many people have you led to Christ? None. Oh, well, I don't know if you're really called then. Wouldn't we see some fruit growing on that tree? I'm called to be a great Bible teacher. Well, then it would make sense when you teach that people would get taught Instead of going, huh? In other words, there's going to be fruit in any kind of calling. That's why I tell people when they ask me about going to seminary. I'm not down in seminary. I got a master's degree in theological subjects myself. But I always tell people, don't go to seminary until you know you've been called into the ministry. Don't go to seminary to find out if you're called. Because you know what? What if you find out you're not? And then you just took eight years of your life or six years of your life and spent it on that. It's not a bad thing to learn, but why don't you find out what God's called you to do and then be prepared. Verse 2, and all the brethren who were with me to the churches of Galatia. There may be more, but I know of four churches that Paul started. Antioch and Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra and Derbe. He was there on his first missionary journey. On your own, not tonight, but on your own, go home and read Acts chapter 13 and 14. It'll tell you the background, and it is an interesting background indeed. Let me just sum it up, if I may. The Holy Spirit, as the church was praying up in Syria, the Holy Spirit said, Separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work I've called them to do. So they went for it. They went out on the road, so to speak. The second place they went was Galatia. They went into the town of Antioch of Pisidia. They walked into the synagogue. Paul preached the gospel to the Jews and to the God-fearing Gentiles. A few people listened to him, believed his message. A lot of Gentiles did. And then the Gentiles said, you know, that was a great sermon. Would you come next week and preach the same message? Paul shows up the next week, but the Jews who were jealous of his ministry, came in and started a riot. Paul had to hightail it to the next town. He went over to Iconium, same thing, walks into the synagogue, that was his style, preached to the Jew first, then to the Greek. He stayed there a long time, it was effective. People from Antioch followed him down, created a persecution and a stir, so Paul had to go down to Lystra. When he's in Lystra, There was a man who was lame since he was born. He couldn't walk. He was a cripple. By the power of God, Paul stretched out his hand, and the man was healed. Miraculously, instantly, phenomenally. The people in Lystra were so excited, but because they were pagans, they said, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Paul and Barnabas Zeus and Hermes, the two chief gods. They started worshiping it. They were going to sacrifice an animal to them. And Paul said, knock it off. I'm paraphrasing. Knock it off. I'm just a man like you are. By this time, the Jews from Antioch and Iconium made it to Lystra, caused another persecution, and the same people who wanted to worship them as gods stoned them. Paul was dragged out of the city as dead. He came to, got up, walked back into the city, preached the gospel. That takes guts. <laughs> then he made it over to Derby, continued his message. Then afterwards, went back through Derby and Lystra and Iconium and Antioch and Pisidia and returned back to Jerusalem. On his second journey and his third journey, he further strengthened these churches, and that's the ones he's writing to. The churches in Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. If you've spent any time in Paul's writings, you know that Paul liked to open up every letter this way. Now, I like the ancient way of writing letters. I don't like the modern way. You know, the modern way is, dear so-and-so, how are you? Blah, 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 blah. Words, 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 signed. Skip. Now, if it's three pages long and you don't know who it's from, as soon as you open the letter, what do you do? You take the third page and find out who's writing this letter. Who's this from? And anybody with any courtesy or decency will always leave their name when they write a letter to somebody. Paul put his name right up front. And then he said, grace to you and peace. What a great way to open a letter. You might want to try that next time. And it speaks of the gospel. Grace and then peace. Grace is the fountain. Peace is the stream. Grace, you might say, is the source of salvation. Peace is the result of salvation. Once you experience God's grace, you'll have peace. By the way, if tonight you don't have peace in your walk, maybe you are very legalistic and antagonistic toward anything new, anything other than what your little construct that you were raised in teaches you. If you don't have peace, it's because you don't know God's grace. When you come to an awareness, I'm unworthy and God loved me and God saved me. You have peace with God. That's what Romans chapter 5 was all about. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a great story about Caesar Augustus. He heard of a man in Rome who was very wealthy but in debt at the time. And though he had incredible debts, he slept every night like a baby, peacefully. This intrigued Caesar Augustus, and he said, Find that man because I want to buy his bed from him that I, myself, might get a good night's sleep. Well, it's not about the bed, is it? It's not about the posturpedic mattress you own. It's all about your relationship to God. Is it one of grace or is it one of legalism? There's no grace in legalism, thus there's no peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now we're getting to the core of the gospel. Verse 4 brings us to the very heart of the message of Paul and the message of the gospel. A lot of times people ask, well, what is exactly the gospel? Here you're coming to the core of it. The gospel centers around a person, not a program, not a list, a person who gave himself for our sins. We're dealing with Jesus Christ personally. So the gospel centers around a person. It is a person who paid a price, and the person paid a price for a purpose. That's the gospel. The person is Jesus. The price he paid, gave himself for our sins. The purpose, that he might deliver us from this present evil age. The heart of the gospel is the cross. Many churches don't preach the gospel. They take the cross out of their songs. They take the cross out of their teaching. They don't want to tell people they're sinners. Why? That's the most loving thing you can do to a person is tell them he's a sinner. It is? Yeah because once you know you're a sinner, then you realize you need a Savior. If you're not convinced you need a Savior, if you're not convinced you're a sinner, you're just going to go out and do a bunch of good works and feel good things and pat people on the back, and it's all about the car wash this weekend. That's it. Only sinners get saved. You You know what the problem is? The problem isn't that There's so many bad people in the world. The real problem is there's so many people who think they're not bad enough. They think they're good enough to be saved. God owes me heaven. I've been a good person. And they list off all of their accomplishments. The heart of the gospel is a person who paid a price for a purpose. Listen to this. It's out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It's the reason for the incarnation. Jesus becoming man. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know what that means? That means God the Father treated Jesus Christ as if he were guilty of every sin ever committed by all of humanity. Or put another way, The Father treated Jesus like we deserve to be treated so that he could treat us like Jesus deserves to be treated. That's the gospel. You can't do anything about your sin by being a good person. Won't wash it away. But I'm a very religious person. Okay. But you're a very religious sinner. Oh, but you don't know how many times I've been to church and read my Bible. But apart from trusting in Christ only, you're just a very nice, smiling, religious sinner. Only the cross takes away sin. That's why we celebrate communion. We hold the element of bread and juice, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And we are acknowledging, were it not for his work, there would be no hope. So the gospel message, and Paul really goes through it more in depth in 1 Corinthians 15, which we've already covered. The gospel is that Jesus died for our sins on the cross, was buried, rose again three days later, and is coming again. That's the core of the gospel message. It involves substitution, he died in our place, and involves deliverance, to deliver us from this present evil age. Look at verse 5. To whom be glory forever and ever, amen. Amen. You know what I love about Paul? Is even with his boxing gloves on, even though he's going to get right into this, and he's going to get pretty heavy in a minute, he's going to go for the juggler, he stops to praise. You notice that as a pattern about this man. He will frequently uncover a truth, stop to worship. Worship to Paul was not an event, it was a lifestyle. What is it for you? Oh, well, it's half an hour before the message starts. This is the singing time. This is the worship the time. This is the time I now praise. No. Worship and praise is to be a lifestyle. You know what I've discovered? I think it's true. This is my opinion now. The way a person worships in public is the way that person worships in private. Sometimes you see people doing worship like this. <laughs> Occasionally the mouth is closed. They're not involved at all. They have checked out. Or they'll watch other people. I believe that's what they do in their private time. I think that public worship is simply a reflection of a private worship service with a whole bunch of other private people gathered together. Paul had a lifestyle of praise and worship. It's seen all through his writings. Verse 6. We're going to go down to about verse 8 and 9 and then close and take communion. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. You know the words that struck me in that verse as I reread it this week? So soon. I marvel that you're turning away so quickly. You know, the Galatians had the greatest Bible teacher in the history of the church, except for Jesus Christ himself, and that was Paul. And yet, he leaves, they're going to turn to false teaching. There is a principle I believe in. It's a physical law. It's the second law of thermodynamics. It's called entropy. I believe in spiritual entropy. I believe just as in the physical world, there's a winding down, a loss of energy over time in the universe, there is also... Unless acted upon a loss of spiritual momentum. Where we start so hot and so on fire, and then after a while we just become professionally stale. (laughs) And when we see somebody burning on fire for Christ, the best we can do is, I remember when I was that naive. Would to God that you'd be naive again, if that's what it is. So soon you have turned from the gospel to another gospel. Church of Ephesus. Paul spent three, three and a half years there. He left. Timothy was in charge. Great pastor. Just a few years later, Jesus had to write a letter to the church of Ephesus saying, You have left your first love. You have left your first love. The church that had Paul and Timothy, the greats of the church, so quickly needed a rebuke from Jesus Christ himself. You know, backsliding is not a sudden thing. It's a slow leak over time. It slowly creeps in. Maybe tonight you can look back on a time when you were closer to the Lord, more passionately in love with him, more devoted, more committed. You know what Jesus said to do? Remember from where you are fallen, repent, and do your first works. That's God's message to us tonight. If you remember a time when you followed Christ more closely and passionately, then you think back to that time, and you repent. You tell God, I'm changing tonight. And you do those first works over again. Verse 7, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. The word pervert means to reverse. Or it could be translated to change into an opposite direction. That's what the Judaizers were doing. They reversed the gospel and went back to law. They even went to Jerusalem, to the very heart of the church. And they stood up and they said, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. They made salvation predicated upon a ritual. Some people try to do that with baptism. Unless you're baptized by our elders, unless you go to our church and keep our rules, you're not a real Christian. I met with a guy from a church whose denomination I will keep quiet for my own reasons. He was dating a girl coming here. He was very narrow and legalistic. Unless you go to his church, you can't be saved. So I said, so you're dating an unbeliever. Right? According to your theology, she's not not saved. Well, I guess you're right. And I said, and you've come to me for counseling, but I'm not saved. Why would you do that? He goes, Well, now I'm confused. I said, No, you were confused before you got here. I'm trying to unconfuse you. <laughs> Verse 8: But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you. Now, listen to this, these words. These are as strong as Paul ever gets. If we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed, anathema, anathema, devoted to eternal destruction. Those are strong words. May I paraphrase so you get the sense? Let him be damned is the translation. As we have said before, so I now say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Paul's a little angry here, but unmistakably clear. Sometimes you need that approach. You know, doctors sometimes look at a person's x-ray and they go, we have to be aggressive with this. We have to cut this thing out tomorrow. Unrelenting unrepentantly so, we got to deal with that cancer. Sometimes nations have to act in a quick and swift manner when people are building up weapons of mass destruction. We have to do that for the peace of the world. And Paul wages war immediately on false prophets because he loves the truth. He's a good shepherd, by the way. Remember David said in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, his rod and staff comfort me. The staff was to guide the sheep. The rod was to beat off wolves. Wouldn't you love to have a shepherd with not just a staff going, nice little sheepy. (laughs) But get away, wolves, or you're dead meat if you come near my sheep. That was Paul. He was a good shepherd. Let him be accursed. Now, imagine if an angel of heaven appeared here tonight. We, We saw an actual apparition. An angel came, and it was glorious and loud and light and gave a new revelation. I am sad to say many would fall for it. Some of us wouldn't bother checking our Bibles. We saw an angel. The Virgin Mary appeared at Fatima and Majigori. And I was on the internet today and thousands of other places around the world. And I watched and read the message that she supposedly gave to pray to her for world peace, etc., cetera, etc, cetera, and the prophecies she gave about Russia that never came to pass, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Jesus and Mary appeared in tortillas around our region, and people saw them and were moved. Joseph Smith was 14 years of age when he received a vision saying that all Christian denominations were wrong, corrupt, it wasn't the gospel. And in his second vision, the angel Moroni in 1823 gave him the true revelation and has led people astray ever since. We are an angel from heaven. Preach any other gospel. Let him be anathema. Before we take communion tonight, I want you to think of this. Paul's message, here's his point, I didn't make this message up, I didn't receive this commission from men, I received this revelation and commission from Jesus himself, now think about that. It wasn't a man-made message, who on earth would make this up? Can you imagine? Would you make up a religion that says, everybody on earth apart from Christ is doomed? There's only one narrow way to salvation. That's not going to go over very well. That's a sure way to persecution. Nobody's going to make that up. But the solution is the blood of Jesus Christ. There's only two religions in the world. Only two. The religion of human accomplishment and the religion of divine achievement. Either it's your works, your goodness, you earn it, or I can't earn it, it's God's work. It's a free gift, and I'm going to receive it. Most people that I meet are still banking on the religion of human achievement instead of the gospel of the grace of God. But we're going to take these elements, and tonight, if you mean business with God, and you have received Christ as your Savior, then you can take them unashamedly with the grace of God, knowing that your sins are forgiven.